Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 63 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Gavin, and that is Mike. And Mike, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but me doing the intro only happens, give or take, 10% of the time. Um, I think that's how math works. Um, or at the very least, like roughly once out of every 10 episodes, if you're more of a fraction kind of guy. Absolutely. And so anybody who's a fan of the show will know that that means that this is a Mike Takes the Wheel episode where we're going to talk yes. about something besides paleontology today, uh, which I'm very excited about. I always really enjoy uh, Mike teaching me things uh, on the podcast, uh, especially the individuals that he tends to pick are people you know that I don't that I've most likely never heard except of for the them. last one episode Mike takes yeah. you to episode five you knew more than I did uh, that was only from the movie which again I, I said a couple times like I have no idea how accurate that movie is I'm sure they got parts of it right but like uh <laughs> but this one uh I don't think I'll know too much about the person I've only just looked at the name uh and we'll get there when we get there though but <laughs> Actually, go ahead, since we, we're trying to start, you know, introducing the topic early. So who, who are we talking about today? Um, today, we are talking about someone that I only became aware of in, um, it was either yesterday or the day before, um, and I believe it was yesterday, was okay. the first time I had ever heard of this person. Um, and I, I don't want to say too much more beyond that. Um, sure. All this right. was, yeah, I don't want to say too much more beyond that. We will get there, and then it'll become very clear at some point why. Um, why that is but um, before sure. we get there uh, and we actually get into you know my part of the episode and in general for those of you that are new the Mike takes the wheel episodes are generally a little bit shorter than mm. the um, than the typical I wish you were dead podcast um, but we do still have a uh, today in history except for it's not so much history it is more science than history so Gavin what do we have um, from uh, what is it February 23rd in history so yeah, today, and so Mike, I couldn't actually find one, so Mike looked this one up. So what was the year on this one again? <laughs> A little fourth wall, I forgot already. It was 1997, yes. Okay, I knew it was late 90s. I couldn't remember exactly what which year it was. But uh, today in history, Dolly the sheep was cloned in Scotland. It was the first mammal ever to be successfully cloned and then, you know, actually like birthed by... Uh, by the mother, which was a, a massive, massive thing. Cloning is not nearly as easy as they make it seem in any movie that does any kind of thing with cloning, uh, particularly mammals, just because mammals tend to have very complex genetics and uh, they just don't tend to like cloning. There are some species that kind of do it by themselves. Um, not of mammals, though. No mammals, to my knowledge, are known to do this. Um, but there's some species of like lizards where there are only females and they only reproduce through it's called parthogenesis where you know they will uh, the species that i'm thinking of are called morning geckos and so two females will it's called pseudo copulation so they will pretend to mate with each other and then they will clone themselves and lay eggs that are clones of themselves so this is not uncommon in things that aren't mammals but no mammals are known to do that and to get mammals to do that was a massive feat that people have been trying to do for a really long time. Uh, and in uh, 1997, they finally cracked it. And Dolly, I believe, lived, you know, a fairly long time. I know sometimes there's some weird things with clones where they don't tend to live very long. 
Really? But, now uh, I want to look this up now. Like, how long did Dolly the Sheep last? Um, did it was a female. Was the first mammal clone. So on Wikipedia, it says that Dolly was born in '96, even though the other website said '97. Gotcha. Okay. Whatever, we'll live with that. Sure. Uh, slight discrepancy. But apparently died in 2003, which is... Yeah, I mean, that's... I was going to say I, like 20 minutes, but wow. Yeah, I think, you know, what is that? Six, seven years is pretty decent life for a sheep. Probably, I'm sure, not as long as they can live, I'm sure. Um, mm-hmm. But I know there was another breeding program for... I think it's... They were Iberian Ibex. So the Iberian... Yeah, we talked about this, I think. Yeah, so the Iberian Peninsula is the peninsula in Europe that Spain and Portugal are on. And they had a species of ibex, which is essentially like a big goat, more or less, um, that was extinct. But we have their genetics. So they were tried to uh, have been cloned and that I think one was born, but it only lived, you know, less than a day. Uh, so even and that was relatively recent. That was a lot more recent than 1996 or seven. Uh, so even today, we still don't really have it down. Uh, so Dolly was sort of that big first step forward, but not, you know, a full, hey, we cracked it. We can clone whatever we want, whenever we want now. So uh, still lots of things going on in that realm, I'm sure. Um, Yeah. So cloning stuff. Cool. Not what we're talking about today, but, you know. Not at all. Not even a little bit. So um, today, let, we're going to go ahead and get right into um, the rest of this episode and sort of begin with here, um, Gavin. This I'm going to kind of bring this back around here. The, we are not talking about this person today, um, but are you familiar with a man named John Green? Okay, so that was the name that I saw. So if this is not the person that we're talking about, I have no idea what we're talking about today. Um, <laughs> so are you talking about like the the person that is still like not a historical person, like a, a current living person, John? Yeah, Green? the current living person. Are you familiar with you know current living person, John Green? The author? Yes. Yes, vaguely. Okay. Um, what? Vaguely, are you just like aware he exists and is an author, or do you know anything else about him? I'm more familiar with his brother. Okay, and so talk a little bit about um his brother. Not this isn't particularly relevant. Well, okay. I mean, let me rephrase that. Actually, it actually is pretty relevant to what we're going to okay. be talking about today. Um, but go ahead and, and give the background of his brother, and then I'll talk a little bit more about John himself. Yeah, so John and Hank uh, were some of the very first like real like YouTube stars, or at least especially in like the sort of like. They had the channel Vlog Brothers, if you remember that, if you're, you know, Mike and I's age or so, maybe a little older. Um, but yeah, they ran the Vlog Brothers channel. And since then, Hank has, uh, you know, branched out to do, he's very popular on TikTok. TikTok. Uh, he's sort of like the TikTok dad that teaches you science <laughs> jokes. Um, but yeah, so Hank has done, you know, he, uh, him and, you know, a handful of other people started like an educational media company called uh, Complexly. They produce like PBS Eons, the YouTube channel, which I am a big fan of, uh, as well as, you know, SciShow, uh, a lot of other things. Like, I'm almost positive if you are currently in high school, middle school, you've seen their videos. Um, so that's what I know about Hank. I know John is an author who wrote some very popular, you know, like young adult type books. Um, but that's yeah, pretty much all so I that's... know about John. No, that's perfect. And so um, that kind of that actually is a pretty good gateway into sort of what I wanted to talk about here. So um, John and Hank Green are, um, you know, they started a YouTube channel in 2007. It's actually still going today out of Vlogbrothers channel. Um, And I have been and I've been a big fan of theirs for um, goodness, probably close to 10 years. At this point, I discovered them kind of late in high school. 
Mm -hmm. um, and in addition to their regular channel, which is just sort of them making videos back and forth, uh, generally speaking, they also started, uh, like you said, the, the company Complexly, which makes things like um, SciShow and PBS Eons. Uh, I think most famously is their um, Crash Course yes. series, um, which I know if you are in high school, um, you have been exposed to that in some form or another. Um, and if you don't know what it is, um, they're making, you know, sort of like AP or, you know, college 101 level, mm -hmm. um, uh, like video series on American history and world history and biology and physics and any number of topics. And they do a lot of great work. And in addition to all of that, um, one thing that they started from way, way back in their like very, very first year of just doing vlogbrothers it wasn't anything with the bigger company it was sort of just them sort of goofing around i actually did a project on this when i was in high school um was they started something called the project for awesome um okay. and it was with a charity called the foundation to decrease world suck and it's actually coming up i believe this weekend um so the timing on this actually works out really well oh cool and yeah the goal of this is to raise awareness of a lot of charities and raise a lot of money for these charities and one charity that they like to work with a lot john and hank green is one called partners in health okay um and i'm just going to quote from wikipedia here i'm going to be doing um, a decent amount of quoting from uh, both wikipedia and another article um that just came out sure um but partners in health if you're not familiar is and i quote an international nonprofit organization that since 1987 has provided direct healthcare services and undertaken research and advocacy activities on behalf of those who are sick and living in poverty. Um, and so basically the whole idea with partners in health is that they bring healthcare to areas that really need it, like impoverished areas that the infrastructure isn't there to have healthcare. And if they don't do it, nobody else is going to. Right. Um, and it was founded by a number, a number of people here. The one we're going to talk about today is a man named Paul Farmer. Um, it, Paul Farmer is the, um, is the subject of today's episode. And I started with John and Hank Green for a couple of reasons that we'll get to in a second. Um, but they were my connection into finding out about who Paul Farmer was. Okay. Um, specifically John Green, um, making a concerted effort. If you don't know about John and Hank Green, as best as I can tell, they are really good guys, really trying to do good work, continuing mm -hmm. to do lots of good work on giving to charities. And Paul Farmer seems to be a lot of the same. So let's get into Paul Farmer himself. He was born in Massachusetts in 1959. He went to Duke, and then he began volunteering at a hospital in Haiti. And that's okay. where he um, that's where he found Partners in Health with, um, with one, two, three, four other people. Um, and while he was there in Haiti, again, founding Partners in Health, if I can try and find um, the, uh, the work here. Partners in, da, 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 um, in Haiti. Um, so there's a hospital in Haiti. I'm not going to butcher the uh, name, but it is a, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but it's sort of the flagship, flagship um, uh, project there. It's a small clinic that was started um, in a village a couple years before then. And it features 104 hospital beds with a couple operating rooms, um, adult and pediatric wards, an infectious disease center, outpatient clinic, a women's health clinic, uh, just a number of, a number of different things to be able to help a country that people didn't think was going to be able to get help. People did not think that the country of Haiti, and we're going to see this with a couple of other countries, was able to get that kind of help, to have that kind of healthcare infrastructure. 
and through the work of Paul, Paul Farmer and Partners in Health, they were able to do that. Um, subsequently, after starting Partners in Health, and I find this kind of miraculous, so they, he starts this, um, this big sort of nonprofit company, um, gets it off the ground, it still exists to this day. Um, after that, he winds up going to Harvard, he earns an MD and a PhD in medical anthropology in 1990, um, all the while going back and forth multiple times to Haiti during med school. Um, and then he completed an internal uh, medicine residency at Brigham and Women's Hospital in 1993 um, and an infectious disease fellowship in 1996. So this is one of those like giant nerds that you, right, know, you would yeah. expect to be, <laughs> right, you would expect them to be um, you're practicing medicine. This, this is clearly someone who was born for this. Mm -hmm. uh, this was not the kid that, you know, was getting a B minus in all of his uh, how to be a doctor classes. And so I want to spend a little bit more time talking about um, partners in health here. So they work in countries. I'm just going to list them all off here. Um, again, this is from Wikipedia. Um, partners in health also works in addition to Haiti in Rwanda, uh, Lethasau, Malawi, Mexico, Peru, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Russia, and the Navajo Nation. Um, and again, they build hospitals and other facilities, train staff, and deliver healthcare to people that really badly need it. And at this point, I'm going to be kind of looking through and quoting from a Washington Post article that came out the other day, um, written by John Green to go through. Okay. John Green's also made a video um, on this topic. I will link both in the uh, in the show notes today. Um, but talking about uh, Paul, talking about Paul Farmer. Um, as a clinician, he walked miles to make house calls to ill patients. As an advocate, he worked tirelessly to expand healthcare access. And as an author, he wrote many valuable books. John also says, I don't really believe in heroizing individuals, but Paul was, for me and many others, a hero. As a medical anthropologist and physician, he was deeply committed to the belief that all human lives had dignity and that every person deserves access to high quality healthcare. He lived this belief for his entire career. And, is, and John mentioned this um, in his video a little bit about how he and Paul wound up becoming friends. And that was sort of um, the genesis of their partnership between the Vlogbrothers and, and Partners in Health. And I am looking for um, kind of one of, the, uh, one of the big quotes here. Um, here it is. So at some point in 1999, he writes a book, um, Infections and Inequalities, the Modern Plagues. Um, and once again, I'm just going to quote directly from John Green. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be doing that a couple of times here because uh, yeah. I cannot say it any better than John Green can, certainly. Um, but Paul was exploring how poverty drives infectious disease and ill health, um, especially to multi-drug resistant tuberculosis, tuberculosis or MDRTB, as well as HIV. And it, Paul goes on to say, opposition to the aggressive treatment of MDRTB in developing countries may be justified as sensible and pragmatic, he wrote. And I will just add in there, the idea there being, there's no reason to put resources into treating these diseases in developing countries because these countries don't have the infrastructure. These countries don't have the the ability to actually take care of their people. Right, and, and like was, that, that sort of discourse in general has kind of been thrown around a little bit in the past you know, year or two with... Mm -hmm distributing vaccines and lo and behold you know both delta and omicron came from most likely places that are historically you know not well taken care of by the rest of the world um right in regard to their medical situation and so 
you know, I'm not to bring things down a little bit, but I'm just kind of holding my breath until, you know, somewhere else that, you know, we haven't given enough vaccines and help distributing those vaccines to for another variant to just pop up in like, I don't know, three, four months. Right. And it's, it's one of those things that like, in addition to it being kind of the right thing to do, and I'll get to that in just a second, like you just said, like, if you are only self-interested, you want to make sure that all these places have appropriate healthcare because germs don't care about borders. Like that is, that's just kind of a fact of life. And so if it is in everybody's self-interest to, um, to raise up the healthcare standards across the world, the rising tide lifts all boats. And this is a very clear example of that happening. Yeah. And so I'm commenting on this, the idea that, you know, we have to, you know, think about where we're putting our care and, you know, we might not want to be putting treatment in these places for one reason or another. He wrote, um, as a policy, it is tantamount to the different valuation of human life. For those who advocate such a policy, for those who say we should be rationing care or, you know, not delivering the healthcare here, they would never accept such a death sentence themselves, which is pretty pointed words Yeah, that, um, uh, that he wrote in this book, which is basically saying, you know, how dare you, how dare you, uh, you know, just say that these lives are worth less than your lives because of where they were born and the infrastructure that exists now that can be built and can be worked up. Um, and I think, and once again, uh, John points this out in his next paragraph here, he brings up um, the director of USAID, U.S. Agency for International Development in 2001. Mm-hmm. One, like, one of the head guys in terms of bringing, uh, bringing health care to different people around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that he opposed access for um, antiretroviral medication for poor people around the world. That's really useful for helping out in treating HIV and AIDS. Right. Yeah. And he said, and this actually, um, I believe this comes after the episode of the West Wing, but I very much remember um, hearing, uh, hearing this argument advanced in an episode of the West Wing. If you've ever seen that TV show. Sure have. Yep. Um, He said an initiative um, to treat HIV would invariably fail because for the treatment to be effective, the medications must be taken on a schedule and that in impoverished communities. And then this is a quote, People mm-hmm. do not know what watches and clocks are. Close quote. Right. Yeah. That's the director of USAID going in front of Congress. This is you know an open hearing in front of Congress saying that it's not worth it to try and treat these people because of that. Uh, and I'm sure he believed, I'm sure, you know, I want to assume the best of intentions here. I'm assuming he actually believed that and thought that it was, you know, in everybody's best interest to ration and, and blah, 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 whatever. I assume his intention was to try and do the most good for the most number of people. But the fact is that he was wrong. Right. Um, and part of that. Ob- obviously. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, like looking back, you know, in, you know, the year of our Lord 2022, obviously if, in, you know, well, I guess he's not an elected official, but if a government official whose job is to distribute things to the rest of the world like that said that they would not be in that job anymore. I would certainly like to I'd like to think so. Um, and so, and so I'm going to quote, you know, once again, from John Green here, the, you know, the head of the United States largest healthcare aid organization really said that to Congress, but by then the despicable lie had already been exposed in 1998, Paul Farmer, as well as partners in health 
had launched the HIV Equity Initiative in Haiti, one of the first programs to provide comprehensive care, including antiretroviral therapy, to people in impoverished communities. Using a network of community health workers, Partners in Health proved that with adequate support and accompaniment, HIV treatments could achieve outcomes in poor countries similar to those in rich ones. Today, more than 12,000 people receive HIV treatment in Haiti through Partners in Health supported facilities. And in Sierra Leone, Partners in Health reports that the monthly average rate of HIV patients returning for care is over 99.9%. In countries and places that supposedly don't know what watches and clocks are, they are continuing to get care at a rate of 99.9%. It is, uh, for me just looking at this, on one hand, it is hard for me not to see kind of the failure of, of governments and larger organizations. You know, this is an organization that was started in 1987 and there wasn't anyone doing anything before that. There wasn't anyone trying their, you know, trying to set up this infrastructure before that period of time. And on the other hand, I look at what partners in health and what Paul Farmer were able to do, um, which is to, again, go to all the countries I mentioned before, to have a 99.9% um, um, return rate in terms of patients returning in Sierra Leone you know, to get HIV medication, to do it in such a wide variety of places um, in, you know, in multiple different continents, in different environments, different legal and political and military situations. It is, um, it's kind of awe-inspiring that somebody who is this smart and you probably could have made a lot more money, you know, going into the private sector and, and charging a boatload for whatever specialty he wanted to go into that he, as well as many other people chose to chose to go to this, to found this organization to, um, to really make it possible to not value people's lives differently, as he said, which is not something we should be doing. Um, to this will be kind of my final quotes of John Green here. The world said a country like Haiti can never, um, the world said, a country like Haiti can never have world-class teaching hospital. And Paul said, yes, it can. The world said, we must accept a world where one in 17 women die in childbirth in Sierra Leone. And Paul said, no, we don't. And that's, that's kind of the moral of, um, or the, the good piece of what I want to bring out here about Paul Farmer, that we don't have to accept things just the way they are. Um, the reason we're talking about him on an episode of I Wish You Were Dead is that um, we are recording this podcast on February 22nd, 2022. Uh, happy Palindrome Day. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, also the same if you flip it upside down as well. Oh, yeah, the, Was it anagram? Is that what that's called? It was Anna, some, it was Anna something. I don't remember yeah, what it was. Like, anyway, not like important. That. Yeah, not important. Um, so we are recording this on the, on the 22nd. Um, uh, Paul died in his sleep yesterday. From when we're recording this oh wow um in rwanda he died at the what was being called a, an acute cardiac event um which to me makes it sound like this was an unexpected event and yeah, you know yeah. right a you know a tragic loss for the world this is somebody who you know wrote many books and uh, would testify in front of congress he worked for the United Nations in um, in different capacities. There have been books written about him. Um, 
Uh, there's one, Mountains Beyond Mountains, The Quest of Dr. Paul Farmer, a man who would cure, man who would cure the world. There's the, the ability and the passion for one person to basically make it their mission to say, we don't have to accept things the way they are. And I'll be damned if anyone's going to stop me is it is commendable. And I, it's one of those things where I wish there was more stories like this, or I wish there was less stories like this. I wish we didn't have to have these stories. I wish that it didn't take a bunch of really smart doctors starting an organization in 1987 to try and build up the healthcare infrastructure of these places. But if that's the world we're going to live in, I'm damn happy that there's people like Paul Farmer that were willing to, you know, pick up that mantle. And, you know, I'm certainly hoping that there are people after him that are willing to continue to carry that torch into the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I just did the, you know, quick math in my head. Cause you know, 1959 sounds like a long time ago, but he was only at the most 63 you know, <laughs> so. yeah, he was, he was sick. His birthday was in October. He was 62 years old okay. when he died. Um, and so you kind of in that spirit, um, the project for awesome, which will be, um, raising money for a number of charities, including partners in health, um, is taking place this weekend. If you don't know what it is, I can leave some links down below, but basically it's where you know, spearheaded by John and Hank green, many people in the YouTube community, you know, try to raise both awareness and possible money for, um, these organizations, they've raised, I think the last couple times they've done it, they've raised over a million dollars um, per year that then gets divvied up into various charities. Um, and Partners in Health is going to be on that list. So um, if you get a chance, I'll put some links below for you to learn more about um, both Paul Farmer. I will link both um, John's YouTube video and the article he wrote in the Washington Post. Um, and I'll also link some information if, uh, if you're thinking about maybe donating to an organization um, that is really going to do a whole lot of good in the world. Um, yeah, that, I mean, there's not too much left to say. I wasn't entirely sure who I wanted to do for this episode of, uh, of Mike takes the wheel. And as I was kind of looking around and I saw, you know, John Green's video that he put out, I said, you know what? I don't need to do a, another politician or a military guy or a sports figure. Let's, let's do someone that was doing some good work yesterday. And that's, uh, that's where I think I want to leave our, uh, our story of Paul Farmer here. Awesome. Yeah. And like I said, sort of at the beginning, I always really enjoy your episodes because it teaches me about people that, you know, I've never heard of. And or, you know, especially in this case, you know, people who uh, not many people have ever heard of. Right. Yeah. And especially, you know, with this, you know, a way because I am always, you know, I am a recently graduated student. So it's not like I have all that much spare money. I'm also getting married in a couple months. So that's expensive. Uh, so I don't have all that much money to give to things like charities, but I'm always, you know, keeping an eye out for, you know, things to at least sort of like share on Facebook or something like that. So, um, yeah, this is a really good resource. We'll definitely have it, you know, shared across our, our Twitter and Facebook and, uh, it'll be on YouTube as well. You know, I'll make sure to have this one up in a, in a timely manner. Uh, but yeah, so thanks, Mike. This was a, a really good one. Yeah. You know, obviously unfortunate circumstances, but hoping some good will, uh, will come out of it. Um, I think I said I was done quoting John Green earlier, um, but I'm going, to, I'm going to give him the final paragraph of his article here, and I think that's how we'll close it out. Today, the global mortality rate for children under five is the lowest it has ever been. 
Healthcare systems are getting stronger even in extremely poor communities. But profound health inequities persist, and Paul Farmer was never satisfied with progress in a world where such injustice persisted. We shouldn't be either. Instead, we must carry forward his legacy. It's important to be proud of a lot of the progress we've made, and things are certainly better now than they were 10, 20, 50 years ago. But I like that idea of never being satisfied with any inequities that exist. And uh, and I think we will leave it there with uh, Paul Farmer and with episode 63 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike and that is Gavin, and we'll be back next week with a more science-focused episode. Until then, take care, everybody. This episode of I Wish You Were Dead was written by Mike Bryson and hosted by Gavin Davidson, Mike Bryson, and Fenella Campanino. It was sound edited by Mike Bryson and edited for YouTube by Gavin Davidson. Special thanks to former guests of the pod and to listeners like you.